Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Hey, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, if you're visiting, really glad that you're here. Good morning to our online uh, viewers. Hey, you can see there on the screen, this is uh, week three, or should I say act three of the series we're in, Discovering God's Story, where we're basically doing like a four-week flyover of the Bible, Genesis to Revelations, and you know the overarching story of the Bible. And if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that this series is it's not a typical series in the sense that it's more like a classroom series, lots of information, and uh, life application may be not as clear uh, initially like in other series, but... but uh, I'm convinced, and I hope this is, I hope you're becoming more and more convinced as we go through this series, that this is a super important series because the, God's story is our story. And the more you and I understand God's story, the more we understand our own story, the more we understand our own purpose here on, uh, on planet Earth. And, and as I think back over the last two weekends, I'm like, I don't know how to review all that because <laughs> there's so much information. So if you missed any of those, go to our website. You can, you can uh, uh, watch them again, etc. We also have outlines available on the info counter if you're a note taker. Um, so make sure to grab that. But, but let me say this to set up Act 3. This is just a very brief uh, review of the first two weeks. So Act 1, Act 1, Andrew looked at creation, the Eden Project, and we were looking at uh, Genesis 1 through 11. And, and when we talk about Eden, God didn't just create something. He actually started something. It's not just a place. It's a project. God creates the heavens and the earth, all the animals, etc. He also creates his greatest creation, Adam and Eve, who are made, the only creation made in his image. Adam and Eve representing humanity are, are given the task of uh, were created to reflect God's image be image bearers of God on the earth, taking on the task of cultivating and tending uh, um, just the, you know, the earth as king priests, queen priests of God. But God wasn't just looking for workers. He wasn't just looking for employees. Uh, God is an incredibly relational God. And so when God created humanity, Adam and Eve, he created them with two intentions. You can see there on the screen. Uh, the two intentions are intimacy with God, and intimacy with each other. And if you remember, Andrew talked about it this way. He talked about it like the cross. Think of the cross. God's intention was that we would be vertically in right relationship with him and then horizontally in right relationship with one another. And then built on that, uh, that relational foundation, God gave Adam and Eve, again, representing humanity, gave them three assignments. Multiply, fill, and rule. Multiply, initially it was, it was, uh, make more image bearers. Like it was, it was procreate, have lots and lots of kids, but it's not just having children. It's also making disciples, make other followers of Jesus, other image bearers. And then we were, they were given the assignment to fill, to spread out and take this Eden project, the plan of God, the good news of God, take it all, all over the world. And then to rule wherever we go, uh, we go as ambassadors. We go as co-regents of God to bring his life-giving rule and reign. But if you remember in Act 1, did Adam and Eve do that? Well, no. Very quickly, they failed to both be and do what God had given them to do. And so that brings us to Act 2, 
which was focused in on Israel, God's people for the world. And Andrew covered Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi, the end of the Old Testament. He's going to be taking a sabbatical uh, later. No, hit. <laughs> Courtesy laughs. Oh, oh, that hurts. No, okay, but but in Act One, in Act One, God God has generally revealed Himself and His ways to you know to all of humanity. But in Act Two, what we see is God really focuses in on one man, Abraham his wife, Sarah, really focuses in on, on one family. And then if, if you consider this, the rest of the Old Testament really focuses in on this family and on all their descendants. God chooses Abraham and promises to bless him and to grow the number of his descendants beyond, you know, beyond the, it's not even countable. It's like so many uh, beyond the number of stars in the skies. Uh, in the sky. He shares his plan with Abraham and that he and all his descendants would live under God's care and God's blessing for a purpose so that the other nations of the world would see that and they would want what they have. They would want to live under God's blessing too. They would want to be in right relationship with God and with each other. But part of the covenant, part of the promise was that Abraham and his descendants would have to submit to God's authority and plan in order to stay under that place of blessing. If they didn't submit, if they didn't obey, uh, God would then, they would then come under God's curse, his punishment, with the hope uh, that they would then repent, turn around, and then come back again and submit to his authority and plan. But again, we saw last week that God's chosen people, the people of Israel, uh, like Adam and Eve before, they failed to be and do what God had planned for them to be and do. So that brings us to Act 3. I know that's super brief. If you missed it, make sure you go listen to it. There's a lot more information, but let's pray. And then we're going to go right into, uh, into Act 3. <clears throat> so Lord, we thank, you for, we thank you for a brand new day. Lord, I, uh, you've given us the gift of another day of life. And we thank you for it. And I pray that you would come and... Uh, Lord, would you fill the room? Would you, for those online, would you fill the space they're in right now? Would you come and like you've done for generation after generation, would you pursue us today? Would you uh, teach us something new about you and uh, just continue to form us into the people you've always intended us to be? So we welcome you here in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, here we go, act three. Act three is the Messiah, the true Israel, and we're looking at Matthew through John. So now we're going to be looking into the New Testament. In Act 3, we're focusing in on Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one. And he's called the true Israel because unlike the constant failures of Israel before, uh, up to this point, Jesus is now coming on the scene and Jesus is going to get everything right. He will be and do what God had always intended for the people of Israel to be and do. And we're going to be flying over the first four books of the New Testament, known as, uh, as the Gospels, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. There we go. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're listening. Woo uh, but at the end of, of the Act 2, uh, uh, they, there was a prophetic voice, uh, uh, the prophet Malachi comes with a prophecy for the people of Israel, a people who are longing for their Messiah, longing for a deliverer, longing for a savior. And Malachi basically comes and prophesies like, hey, soon one is going to come in the power of the prophet 
uh, Elijah, and he is going to come to get things ready for the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And uh, the Israelites understood that day as the coming of the promised Messiah, where he was going to come, the Messiah was going to come to deliver them from their enemies, to forgive them of their sins, and to restore Israel to her glory days. Uh, but that prophecy wouldn't come to pass for 400 years. So let's take a closer look at those 400 years. So between the Old and New Testaments, uh, intertestamental period, uh, 400 BC all the way to 0 AD, during that time, there were no prophets speaking. 400 years of silence from God. No anointed leadership Right? If you're familiar, remember if, what Andrew talked about last week, God wasn't raising up any anointed judges and leaders to deliver them from their enemies. There was no presence in the temple. Uh, you know, they were back in, their, in, the, in, in Jerusalem. They rebuilt a smaller version of the original temple, but it's not the same. It's just a building. It's, it's, it, the tangible glory, the tangible presence of God was not there and later on in those 400 years, they're now living under Roman occupation. And just imagine this, even though they've returned to their homeland, so geographically, they're no longer in exile. But because of you know, all these points, the silence of God, the believed absence of God, uh, basically living as slaves to the Romans, all those things say that they may be home, but they are still in exile from God. And so for 400 years, God is silent, but... Uh, but that doesn't mean he isn't active. And when I look at this period of 400, time, uh, 400 years, here's the phrase that goes through my mind. God is preparing. God is installing new fiber optics, right? God is getting ready for act three and he's also getting ready for act four. During the 400 years, here's some of the things that were going on. Alexander the Great, he comes along and he triumphs over the known world. And he's a Greek speaking leader. And so Greek becomes the common language of the known world. During that time, there's a version of the Old Testament is written in Greek, uh, and it's called the Septuagint. So suddenly, the Old Testament scriptures are available to more people. During that time, the Romans are building lots and lots of roads, roads that still exist and are being used today. Uh, that would create incredible ease of travel to move around the known world. It was during a time known as Pax Romana, Roman peace, where with their incredible military strength, Rome, not only could you travel a lot, you could travel in relative safety now because of the military strength of Rome. All these things, all these fiber optic upgrades will make it easier for the people to get to Jesus in Act 3, and then in Act 4, easier for the gospel to get to the people. Uh, so God is very active during this period of time. Finally, after 400 years, God speaks into the silence. And he speaks initially to a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, Jones. <laughs> no, I don't, I, okay, scratch that. That's not true. But it is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest uh, 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 in the temple. And uh, during, on his day, his day of serving in the temple, he goes into the Holy of Holies, and he's visited by an angel who basically says to, to Zechariah, hey, you and Elizabeth are going to have a baby boy. And he's not just any baby boy. He is the baby boy. He's the one that Malachi prophesied about. He's going to come and prepare the way for God. And we're talking about John the Baptist. And when I look at this story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, I, it reminds me of Abraham and Sarah. And what I mean is, doesn't God always seem to take the hard way? Like, he, you know, back in, in last week when Andrew talked about, you know, God's looking for someone to, you know, to, to birth this, you know, this, this family line. And so he picks an 
elderly couple who are well beyond childbearing years. I could have thought of lots of other people I would have picked, but he picks them. Hey, you're, I'm gonna use you. And now he comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth who are well beyond their childbearing years. And he says, I'm gonna pick you. Just, so it's just God's way. And of course, God is faithful to what he said he would do. Elizabeth is pregnant. And then God speaks into the silence to a, to a young, a teenage gal named Mary. Uh, Mary is not yet married. She is still a virgin. The angel Gabriel comes to her and basically says, hey, Mary, the Holy Spirit is gonna come upon you and you're gonna conceive a little boy. And this little boy is just no ordinary little boy. He actually is the Messiah. You know, and if you think of Jesus, Jesus often referred to himself as the son of God and the son of man. God was his father. Mary was his mother. And so those, those two titles were very accurate for Jesus. Uh, John and Jesus are born and quickly they go off the radar for like the next 30 years until God again speaks into the silence through uh, now grown up, an adult, through John the Baptist. Here comes John the Baptist out of the wilderness, the last prophet or the final prophet uh, of the Old Testament prophets. And he basically comes with a message of get ready. And again, consider that it's been 400 years since the people of Israel have, have had a prophet come on the scene to speak on God's behalf. And John like, comes on totally with the, the, the message and the look of an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he's dressed in camel hair clothes. He's wearing Jordan high tops. He has a diet of locusts and honey. And he comes on the scene with gusto. And basically his message is one of preparation. Get ready. The kingdom of God is at hand. Deliverance is coming. Israel, you need to repent. You need to turn around. You need to turn back to God. You have failed at being the people of God for the world. And now God is giving you, now God is sending you another chance. And the way that the people got ready, the way that they showed their repentance was through baptism. John coming on the scene just stirred a buzz. Right, 400 years they're waiting. And now here comes this prophet. It stirred an incredible buzz. Something big is, is happening. And so people from all walks of life were you know, coming out to the Jordan River to John. Uh, they're lining up to get baptized. And one of the people who gets in line to be baptized is Jesus. And this is the first, this is the, the start of the public ministry of Jesus. And so for the rest of my talk, I'm really gonna look at his public ministry in three sections. Galilee Jesus, Jerusalem Jesus, and then resurrected Jesus. So number one is Galilee Jesus. So this is the start of his public ministry. Jesus reveals himself as the perfect king. And you know, when I consider a perfect king, a perfect king is a king that will act on behalf of his people for the good of his people. A perfect king will do whatever it takes to rescue his people and to restore his people. And we see that right away as Jesus starts his public ministry, Jesus lines up to get baptized. And it's like, well, why would he do that? He's never sinned. Like he he's, he's, has nothing to repent of. Well, he's the perfect king. He is identifying with his people. He's identifying with sinful Israel, sinful humanity. Jesus was baptized as a representative of Israel he was baptized as a representative of all humanity. And where they had continually failed, he would now succeed. And so John, you know, baptizes Jesus. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, right? What does the story say? The spirit, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. 
And, and really the picture is, here comes the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters. Ding, 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 ding. That should remind us of something. That just should remind us of Genesis 1, where the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. There's something new is going on here. So God, you know, in this moment, the Spirit is hovering over the waters. And Jesus, God declares Jesus as the new Adam or the second Adam, or Paul calls him the last Adam. God declares him to be right with him and with others. Matthew 3, 17, and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. God is basically, it's like a restart, if you will. God is restating the two intentions, a right relationship with God and with others. And, and this is such a significant theme throughout the Bible. And this, again, this is where this series is, is really helpful for us. Just this theme of what does this all come down to? It comes down to right relationship with God and with our fellow man, etc. cetera. Uh, later on in his ministry, Jesus totally reaffirms these two atten- intentions. Uh, he's, you know, he's surrounded yet again by the religious leaders and they're you know, throwing him questions at him. And, and they say, hey, Jesus, what's the most important commandment, right? And Jesus could have said, most important thing to do. Like if you really want to please God, he could have given him the three assignments, couldn't he? He could, he could have said, uh, hey, well, you better get out there and multiply, fill, and rule. But he doesn't do that. What does he say? Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus replied, he didn't cough, but love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the people and the prophets hang, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So with that, Jesus, you know, again, reestablishing, reinforcing, Jesus now in right relationship with God and man, starting in his ministry, now sets off to fulfill the three assignments, multiply, fill, and rule. But just like in the garden, just like with Adam and Eve, the first task, if you will, of Jesus is to go head to head with the serpent, to go head to head with Satan in the wilderness. And it actually says that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he's gonna fast, no food, no drink for 40 days. And he's very tired. He's very vulnerable. And it's in that condition that the, the devil comes to tempt Jesus. And it's not the, exact, the same words as we saw back in Genesis 3, but it, it is the same temptation. What I mean is the devil basically comes to Jesus and he's tempting him to distrust God's plan and to take his future into his own hands. And where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus passes uh, in faithful obedience to God. And, and you know, it's interesting to me as I was reading it this week, where did Jesus take his test? Out in the wilderness, right? Adam and Eve, they took their test in the garden, in the place where we were made to be. They took their test in the garden, you know, which was in Eden. And, and in, in failing their test, where were Adam and Eve banished to? To the wilderness, weren't they? What a perfect king. Where does Jesus go to take this test? He goes to the place where his people have been banished to. He goes to fight on their behalf and he wins on their behalf. Why? So that we could return to the garden. So after this, Jesus heads to Galilee up in Northern Israel, Sea of Galilee, all kinds of cool stories from that area. Uh, He's teaching in their synagogues, their Jewish churches. News about him is spreading like, hey, who's this? 
this upstart rabbi. And, and then he, you know, he's itinerant, he's moving around and he gets to his hometown of Nazareth. <clears throat> and when he's in Nazareth, he goes to the synagogue, he gets up and reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the perfect king basically lays out his kingly job description. This is what he says. Uh, Luke 4, 16, he stood up, Jesus stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And just look at this. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Just imagine they're looking at Jesus and they're going, who? Wait a minute. I think he's talking about himself. Who is this guy? And Jesus adds to their curiosity. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Again, stirring the public up with who, his identity, etc. After this, he called 12 disciples to come follow him. What's he doing? He's multiplying. Jesus is, is making more image bearers. And they follow Jesus around watching him. In fact, Lots and lots of people followed Jesus around, watching him and learning from him as, as the perfect king, as Jesus demonstrated what the rule of God looked like uh, and how citizens of the kingdom were invited to live as co-regents, as ambassadors of God on the earth, filling the earth with his life-giving rule. So what was Jesus doing? Here's, he was going around, <clears throat> he was casting out demons. He was healing every kind of disease and sickness offering forgiveness of sins apart from the temple system of sacrifices. He was offering eternal life beginning now, not just then, beginning now. He was modeling a new lifestyle oriented around servanthood, teaching new understanding of the purpose, the role of the law, uh, uh, demonstrating power over nature and, and, and raising the dead and the people are, are looking at all this and they're, they are so, their minds are blown over the authority of Jesus, not only in his words, but especially in, in his deeds and the things that he was doing. And they are convinced that he is the one. And so in believing that he's the one, their assumption is, okay, okay, we got it, Jesus. We know exactly what needs to happen next. You are the perfect king. You're the one we've been waiting for. You need to go now and raise up an army. You need to head on over to Jerusalem and once and for all, you need to go there and you need to destroy our enemy who they saw as the Romans. That's what they saw. And so while his popularity with the people is going through the roof, it's not so with the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. They see him as both a religious and political threat. And so they are plotting his demise. Because, you know, Jesus would have been so confusing because they see, they hear the words, they see the miracles and they're thinking... I, they're thinking this must be the guy, but then the way he goes about, uh, his ways just drive them crazy. What I mean is this, like, yes, he's raising up an army, but he's calling to himself the wrong people. Who's he inviting to come join him, to come follow him? He's, he's inviting the outsider, the non-Jew, right? It's sort of like, it's, it's very much that uh, uh, it's the wrong people, right? That's not who the Messiah would call to himself. He's, and he's doing it all the wrong way. He keeps breaking their interpretation of the law. Uh, you know, uh, uh, and then the last straw was he's going, he's even going so far as to call himself the son 
of God, the Son of God. And, you know, they don't, as the people do, they don't see him as the Messiah. They don't see him as the perfect king. They actually see him as a deranged, demon-possessed man uh, um, who needs to be silenced. Everything is okay. Yeah, they've got it. Yeah. Hey, let's just pray right now. Lord, we just pray for Boyd. Lord, uh, we thank you that you know what's going on and we, yeah, bless you. We just pray that you would uh, just heal his body right now. So just bless your son. Bring your rule in Jesus' name. Okay, so, so uh, Jesus now, uh, number two, Jesus is, is uh, Jerusalem Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem and, uh, and, he's, and he's revealing himself as the high priest. And the role of the high priest was to represent the people before God. And uh, in going to Jerusalem, Jesus was on his way to do that and so much more. And this is so, I mean, the timing of all this, of, as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem, the cross, etc. Just it, it just so happens to be at the time where they're celebrating Passover. And, and, and so this is super, super significant. This is a bright neon sign as to who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Remember Passover, Andrew talked about this last week. It was, it was, the celebration was to remember back in Egypt when they were you know, prisoners to the Egyptians, God instructed them, the Israelites, to slaughter, sacrifice a lamb, smear its blood on the, on the wooden doorposts so that when God's angel of death, basically, was coming to give, pour down judgment on the, on the people, the angel of death would see the blood on the door and he'd pass over. Judgment would pass over them. And, and so up to this point, uh, as Jesus is nearing Jerusalem, even with all his amazing miracles, Jesus has kept a level of secrecy regarding his messianic identity. But as he rode into Jerusalem, all that was going to uh, quickly change. As prophesied by Zechariah, back in uh, Zechariah 9, he said this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the people seeing that, they go, hey, there's our king. And the city erupts with celebration as they welcome in their king, as they welcome in their Messiah. And, 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 you know, and all their assumptions, all their interpretations, all of their you know, expectations of the Messiah, you know, who he would be, what he's going to do to their enemy, the way that he's going to do it, we're, we're literally blinding them to who Jesus really was and what he'd really come to do. The people missed the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a humble donkey as opposed to like a, a massive war horse. Because really what Jesus was saying is, hey, I haven't come to crush the head of Rome. Uh, I know you're convinced that's your enemy, but I haven't come to crush the head of Rome. I've, I've come to crush the head of the serpent, of the devil, of the one who truly is there, our enemy. And, and you know, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, there's a, there's a part on where as you come to the, the, the summit of the Mount of Olives, where you come over this summit and boom, you get this incredibly panoramic view of Jerusalem. 
And just imagine if, you know, here comes the king and there's the city, his city. And, and when Jesus sees the city, does he, you know, he doesn't, you know, let out a big battle cry. Like everyone grab your swords. I couldn't, guns came to mind. I thought, no, that doesn't make sense. That's not, but, it's, but, but does he give a big battle cry? He doesn't. What does Jesus do as he sees Jerusalem? He weeps. It says that he, you know, he, he, he weeps. Luke 19, 41, he approached Jerusalem. When he saw the city, he began to weep. He said, oh, I wish you had known today what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. See, the people, and I think we still struggle with this today. The people had missed the true nature of his kingship. He wasn't there to fight a military battle. He wasn't there to fight a political battle. Because there's a much, much greater battle that we can't see, but he can. He was there to fight a spiritual battle. And this battle would not be won by the taking up of arms. It would be won by the laying down of his life. Uh, Jesus is the glory, the presence of God now returning to Jerusalem. But he's not returning to Jerusalem uh, to fill the temple. Remember Jesus, uh, uh, he, he referred to himself as the temple of God, that his body is the temple. And that's important for us to note because the Bible says that as his followers, we are the body of Christ. And this is speaking to something that is soon going to happen in, in Act 4 when the Holy Spirit falls and comes to fill his temples. He hasn't come to fill the temple, but actually to really to declare its end. Right? Jesus has come to, to declare that the temple, the, 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 the sacrifices in the temple are no longer necessary because the great high priest is now here to perform, to be the final once for all sacrifice. So at this point in the story, things start to move really quickly. Judas, one of the 12 disciples, as prophesied, goes to the religious leaders and offers to hand Jesus over to them for a price. Uh, the day before, the day of the Passover meal, Jesus gathers with his disciples for the Last Supper. Amongst other things, he again speaks to them of his impending denial, arrest, uh, death, and resurrection. And then on the day, the day of preparation for the Passover meal, Jesus is arrested, he's tried, he's sentenced. And at the time when the Passover lambs would have been slaughtered, the spotless lamb of God taking on the sins of the world, uh, dies on the cross. And, and as a sign to all, it's such a significant sign to all of what was being accomplished in that moment. In the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, the place that they saw as the presence of God, the big thick curtain that literally was a keep out sign to everybody, but the high priest once a year, uh, that curtain uh, was torn into from top to bottom, bottom, saying, God tore it, not man. God tore it as a sign that what was broken way back in Genesis 3, the barrier that was created between God and humanity has now been once and for all removed. Jesus, in dying on the cross, uh, you know, Jesus has paid our sin debt. He's conquered death. Jesus has, not will, has crushed the head of the enemy. He has disarmed him of his two greatest weapons, sin and death. Uh, we are no longer banished to the wilderness. Now all people have full 
and permanent access to God because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can now go back to the garden. Third point, resurrected Jesus, where he reveals himself, really he confirms himself as the son of God. The very claim that stirred up the people that infuriated the religious leaders would have meant nothing. His claims of being the son of God would have meant nothing if he had only died a martyr's death and stayed dead. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In the overarching story, discovering God's story, in the overarching story of the Bible, the resurrection of Jesus is really, it's, it's the pivotal event. Because uh, without the resurrection, the Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus, his claims about himself, his promises for the future, they really mean nothing if he can't pull that off. But if he can, well, then they mean everything. It means he can, he can do anything. It means they're, that they're all true. After his resurrection, it's interesting to me who Jesus reveals himself to now in his resurrected body and who he doesn't reveal himself to. According to the Bible, he doesn't make himself known to Pilate. He doesn't make himself known to uh, the religious leaders. He doesn't even go to the local news stations. What it, what it says is instead, Paul wrote this 30 years after Jesus had come back to life. 1 Corinthians 15, 5, Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Isn't it interesting? Like, and I don't understand it. I would have done things very differently. I would have hired a, you know, a whole marketing crew or something. But, but resurrected Jesus makes himself known only to his followers, to the ones who would now on the foundation of the two intentions, relationship with God and one another, to the ones who now are going to get to work to, to fulfill those three assignments of multiply, fill, and rule. Jesus is getting them. He's getting us ready for act four, which focuses uh, in on the church. And his final words to his followers, he restates basically the two intentions, the three assignments. Uh, and we know it as the great commission. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Why don't we, why don't we stand up? Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.